Welcome to the Four Corners Crime Cast. My name is Rory. My name is Katie. And I'm your host, Jake. And today we're doing part two of the kidnapping and murder of Nick Markowitz. And you want to remind everybody where you did your research? I read a book called My Stolen Son, The Nick Markowitz Story by Susan Markowitz, who is his mother. And let me just say, there's a lot of information in that book. And so this part two is just part of a overall trifecta, I'm thinking. I think last week you said it was, what, like 400 pages? Which okay. it is not. It was 200. So I'm, no, it was it's almost 300. 280-something. 96. Okay, I'm not good at being concise, as it turns out. So there's a lot of information in my book report for you guys. That's fine. Nobody asked you to do Like, no one concise. complained. Well, where did we leave off last week, Jake? Last week when we left off, Nick Markowitz was dealing with what most would consider pretty normal teenage angst. Having been recently bar mitzvahed, Nick seemed to grow up overnight. But with that new feeling of grown up came the standard pushing of his parents' limits. What they didn't know was that when Nick was out with his best friend Ryan, they were spending a fair amount of time with Ben, mostly at parties. At least one of those parties was at the home of Jesse James Hollywood, son of the upstanding citizen we covered in the first episode, Jack Hollywood. This is roughly where the movie Alpha Dog picks up the story, and according to Susan, the retelling done on film was mostly accurate, with, of course, a few dramatizations. Which I was thinking, when we're done with the series, we could do a little spot about uh, what the movie dramatized, dramatized, what they didn't. Yeah, so... Alpha Dog, though, is... Not good. I mean, the acting's not good, but I, I the story, obviously, is very close to this woman's heart. It's her son. I wonder how hard it is to actually see that on film. Yeah, we'll get into that. She talked okay. a little bit about that. The thing about Alpha Dog is that when I was a kid, it was way better. Yeah. like So much better. It was geared towards, you know, teenage people, I guess. And I didn't notice that uh, the guy who played Ben had... Jewish and Nazi tattoos. Yeah, I was just going to ask, did he actually have swastikas all over his body even though he was Jewish? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that that was part of the movie. I think that he had a bunch of shitty tattoos that he had done on himself, but I don't think that they were... There was no mention of swastika tattoos in the book. Well, I don't think she would mention that. Eh, you know, so there was there was a time when she was pretty pissed off at Ben, so she might have mentioned it. Susan could tell that Nick was slowly being pulled towards his brother. It makes sense. He was getting older and his brother was the person he wanted to be like. All pretty standard for a 13-year-old kid, I would say. Of course, it worried Susan and the situation came to a head when Nick disappeared after having an argument with his parents. Susan went slightly out of her mind wondering where he was, but after a while she got a call from Ben saying he was there and he was just cooling off. Contrary to the depiction in the movie where Susan got all mad and demanded that Ben return Nick immediately, she let him stay the night there and Ben took Nick to school the next day. When Nick returned home, he was still mad though, telling his parents he didn't want them keeping him from Ben anymore, saying, quote, he's my brother and I love him, which is what she put in the book, and I'm guessing he probably yelled it at them. Nothing got better after that. Nick stayed pissed off for pretty much the entire summer, and Susan wasn't sure what to do. She sort of accidentally stumbled upon the answer to that question when she allowed Ben and his girlfriend to move into their house. For a short time, everything went well, and when Ben did move back out, Nick didn't really seem like he was mad at his parents anymore. 
apparently Ben moved out because his girlfriend had picked back up with the quote-unquote hard drugs. I'm not sure what drugs she was into, but maybe meth. Why do we say meth? Because meth was something that occasionally Ben would sell or later and later down the road he would do a little bit. He'd have a little fun. He dabbled. Is meth something that you dabble in? I mean, for a few days at a time. (laughs) Sometimes you dip your toe. After Nick's 15th birthday, his dad decided he was old enough to learn to ride a motorcycle motorcycle, and bought two Yamaha 225s. Probably TTR 225s, if I had to guess. It's just because that's the only 225 that I can think of that Yamaha made back then. They rode the bikes all over together, mostly just riding around the beachy lands, which... In my opinion, it's just California. The whole place is just beachy lands. That's not true. All right. At one point, Nick wrecked pretty bad, but it didn't seem to stop him from wanting to ride with his dad. Oh, I did not mean to rhyme. My brother, when my dad got him a motorcycle the first time he got on it, he broke his collarbone. Did he get back on the horse? No, he's never been on a motorcycle <laughs> since. since. The summer before Nick's sophomore year held the usual camping trip. Nick's best friend Ryan went with them, and they spent most of the trip pulling trout and catfish out of the lake and playing a bit of frisbee and baseball and volleyball and all kinds of uh, grassy sports, I would say. Summer sports. Yeah, summery grassy sports. The evening of August 5th, Nick came home uncharacteristically early, beating curfew by a full hour. Despite trying to brush past the rest of the family, his sister Leah noticed his red eyes and called him out for being stoned. Snitch. Don't narc out your brother for being high. That's just, you just don't do that. Would would Eva ever narc you out for being high? Of course. Yeah, I thought so. (laughs) Noticing a strange outline in Nick's pockets, Susan confronted him about what was in said pockets. Instead of showing her, though, he pushed past her out the door and took off running. You can actually run really far when you're stoned because your blood vessels are all (laughs) open up and carry more oxygen. Yeah, just fucking fly like an eagle. What yeah. was in his pocket? I mean, we're going to find out later, but it turned out that it was... Um, a little dugout? A little no, it was, it was a baggie of Valium. Oh, Whoa. he's hitting the hard shit. She said that she could tell it wasn't weed. We'll get into it. Susan knew she couldn't catch up with Nick and assumed he probably went to Ben's despite the fact that he had said he wouldn't do that again. After a bit, Leah and her family said their goodbyes and headed down the road. Just a few blocks away, she found her brother walking along the street. He tried to get her to let him come to her house and stay there for a bit, but Leah, presumably not wanting to cross her parents the way Ben had done, told him, Hell no, you get back there and face the music. Shortly after that encounter, Nick walked in and Susan grabbed and hugged him. She had been understandably very worried, saying she was on the verge of losing her mind. When asked why he took off, he said he didn't like being bugged about smoking cigarettes. Susan made him promise not to run off like that again, which he said he wouldn't, and she let him off to bed. She knew he wasn't just smoking cigarettes, and she had a suspicion that it wasn't weed either. He seemed up, not down. Like he was a little bit wired. Of a volume? So it'd probably be Adderall or something like that? if it Maybe. Then we'll get it. I don't know. I'm just going off the book. The book said that he had volume in his pocket. Okay. The next morning, Jeff went early to say goodbye to Nick. Now, I'm not sure why you would wake your kid when they're sleeping, but I imagine it was a regular occurrence in this household. Either way, Jeff kissed Nick goodbye and told him they would, quote, talk later when he came back. A couple of hours later, when he came back, Nick was nowhere to be seen. Susan and Jeff assumed he was trying to avoid the issue of the night before, and they just sort of nervously waited around for Nick to come back. They called Ben and left him a message, telling him what had happened and letting him know that they figured Nick might head his way. 
Susan set to cleaning to kill her nervous energy. At this point, he just run off, like woken up and left. Yeah, he pretty much got up and I think he went out his bedroom window. I'm not 100% sure because in the book it just said he had disappeared from his room. Jesse James Hollywood was basically born into dirty money. Despite his father, Jack, trying once to attempt to go straight and start a sports bar in Colorado, Jesse grew up watching his father move large quantities of commercial-grade marijuana. That in itself isn't really a damning offense, although the quote-unquote war on drugs and the smuggling that comes with it means even if he was just the last stop on the train, a lot of lives were probably ruined by the product before it got to him. Either way, it wasn't all he was into, as he would later be arrested on charges of manufacturing the date rape drug, GHB, and he was also known to move prescription pills on occasion. I guess when they'd probably fall into his lap. You know, scumbag type stuff. When did, was he arrested when uh, Jesse James was a child? I didn't get a full scope of his arrest record, but the only arrest that was mentioned in the book was, uh, comes much later, and okay. it was re- involving the the GHB. Jesse took to the family business like Rory to an alien conspiracy and ran with it. Only he sold good weed and quite a bit of it. Supposedly he was a main supply for a whole chunk of the San Fernando Valley. He had lots of people who worked for him and he would send them with weed on consignment and they would sell the product and bring back Jesse his cut. One of the people who was working for him was Ben Markowitz. Is that the normal way to sell large amounts of marijuana? Yes. On consignment? Yes. That seems like a bad idea. For the most part, it is. Yes. Did Nick know that his brother was in some shit? I'm sure he had an idea, uh, but he was pretty sheltered, even from his brother by his parents. So, um, Although, like I said, he'd been going to parties and stuff with him for a while, so he was starting to get an idea, but I think he was pretty fresh on the scene. Did his parents know that Ben was dealing drugs? They had suspicions, yeah. He'd been caught dabbling in the in the art of slanging narcotics. Caught dabbling like selling dime bags or like, yeah, like literal pounds of marijuana. No, nah, like him. selling dime bags to his friends and shit. He was just cheesing a couple of dimes to the homies, bro. That's all. It wasn't big time. Hollywood wasn't exactly imposing when it came to physical stature. At just five foot four inches and about a buck forty, he probably didn't strike fear into your average Joe on the street. But to the people who knew him, his dad and his temper, he was not somebody you wanted to cross. And Alpha Dog made like a really big point that he was short, right? Yeah, yeah. They had to talk about that he was just a tiny little man. They did use word for short person a bunch of times, but that was in the book once, so that was technically factual. I'm 5'4". If Hollywood said jump, his crew would say, how high? If any of them owed him money he would make them work it off in manual labor hours around his house. One of these characters was named Ryan Hoyt, portrayed both in the book and in the movie as a real brown noser. Hoyt was essentially the crew bitch, and he did whatever Jesse wanted, sometimes even before Jesse asked for it. Hollywood had everyone in line. Everyone except Ben, that is. What made Ben different? Ben didn't take shit. Actually, I'm not really sure why, but... I think it was just his mannerisms. He'd known, he'd also known Jesse Hollywood since they were kids playing Little League. So they, and he was also a little bit older than him. So, and taller? Much taller. Yes, much taller. Ben, while being pretty much Jesse's right hand, wasn't interested in being treated like a lackey. He wanted to do his own thing and didn't want to have to answer to Hollywood. 
Comically enough, he started calling himself Bugsy after mob boss Bugsy Siegel. Does he realize he's selling marijuana? Well, it was a different time, you know? There was a bit more of a, we'll put you in prison for life for this type vibe. I still don't think even back then you could compare yourself to a mob boss if you're selling (laughs) marijuana. Yeah, I'm so gangster, I sell weed. Call me Bugsy Swiegel. And, like, if he wanted to do his own thing, why did he not seek out someone else to get his product from? Why is he... Because competition creates violence, Katie. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think uh, I think he probably just had other things in mind that he was going to do that didn't necessarily involve selling weed and stuff. I'm not 100% sure, but it, I, I got the vibe from the book that he was just kind of happy with where he was at at the moment. But Complacent? He was complacent. He was complacent, but he didn't want to be like a, like a, a, basically an indentured servant. He didn't want to do yard work. Yeah, yeah. He'd rather tell him to fuck off and leave. (laughs) Still, when Hollywood started talking about a guy who owed him money and the fact that he was essentially going to bust this dude's head for the debt, if he could reach it, Ben offered to kind of middleman the situation to try and get the debt resolved. He said he knew the guy who owed Hollywood money and was on good terms with him. So he jumped in the car with Hollywood and they went to find the guy. Upon finding him and realizing that there was zero chance of collecting the two G's from this dude who was flat broke, Ben hatched a scheme. This guy, we're going to call him Timmy, because I'm tired of calling him Guy, knew an ecstasy dealer that he would regularly set up deals for. Ben instructed him to call the dealer and tell him he had guys who wanted to buy 200 pills. Now, when the dealer brought the pills to the car window, Ben and Hollywood grabbed the pills and drove away. So they just, they just janked him. Now that they had the pills, Ben said he would sell them and give Hollywood his 2K out of the profits. Hollywood was okay with the plan, and Ben took the pills and left. So 200 ecstasy pills is worth four grand, I'm assuming? Um, I f- want to say he was going to sell them for, yeah, 20 bucks a piece, I think. Oh my god, people pay that much for ecstasy? <laughs> oh, Katie. After selling a few of the pills, though, Ben's customers came complaining that they didn't do shit. Sure enough, they were bunk. Ben knew because he took some. He wanted to have a good time. He had no time. Ben headed to Jesse's to fill him in. He took with him 600 bucks from the pills that he'd already sold, which he didn't give back to his customers. He borrowed another 200 from his dad, which he also took with him. When he got there, he told Jesse the pills were no good and that he wasn't going to sell any more bad product. This also meant he wasn't going to pay back the rest of the money. This was not okay with Hollywood. He told Ben that if he accepted the, that he had accepted the debt for his friend and he was going to pay it back. Go fuck yourself. Pay me the money, he said. But Ben just waved him off and walked out. So this is the scene in Alpha Dog where there's a huge breakout fight between these two, correct? I think technically, yes, this is that scene. Yeah. Where he like did the awesome like jump from his back. Yeah. He falls through the table and then he jumps back up. Yeah, because he's got like the belt around his neck or whatever. Yeah, Taekwondo style. But in reality, they just kind of parted ways without any more discussion on the matter? According to Susan. Okay. And did he give... Hollywood the $800? Or did he that say, I don't know. fuck you, I'm just going to take this too? No, I think he actually did give him the $800 because this whole situation was cause, was about 1200 Okay. Was all This whole thing happens over 1200 They didn't see each other for a few months, and Ben assumed the issue had blown over. They had even seen each other a couple of times at random places with nothing coming of it. That was until one night when Jesse and his girlfriend Michelle were out eating at the restaurant that Ben's fiance worked at. She was their waitress, and at the end of the meal, they skipped out on the tab and wrote, quote, 
take this off Ben's tab. In the movie, there was something way more offensive written on the receipt. That was dramatized. This really pissed Ben off, and he called Jesse to let him know. Hollywood didn't answer, but that didn't stop Ben from leaving a pretty scathing voicemail in which he threatened, You're a little fucking punk, and you're not going to get a dime out of me. Next time we see each other, we handle business. Which is, you know, personally, like, my favorite way to leave a voicemail. Yeah, just always end it, we'll handle business. <laughs> yeah, then everyone knows you're up for business. Good, bad, whatever. So, Ben was assuming that he was just going to fight Jesse, and then the whole thing was going to be... Yeah, they were going to... Over and done with? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure... I mean, Ben probably assumed he was going to beat the shit out of Jesse because he was Taekwondo, and he was pretty good at it compared to Nick, who wasn't actually very good at it. Ben wasn't concerned that Jesse was surrounded by all of these people that would happily do his bidding, and if he did win the fight, he would not face consequences for that? Didn't you see Alpha Dog? He kicked everybody's ass. Everyone was scared of him. I don't know. He he. I don't think he was thinking that far ahead of it. Ben was kind of the type of guy, or probably maybe still is because he's not dead, but uh, he's the type of guy who reacted first, I think, and thought later. And if you pissed him off or disrespected him, he didn't really seem like the type of guy to take that. So he just kind of reacted. If the threats weren't enough, Ben took it a step further blowing up an insurance fraud scam that Hollywood was in the middle of. Hollywood was trying to get a payout on a custom Honda that was supposedly worth around 30 grand. He had stripped the car of all its parts, had a friend crush it, and then reported it stolen. Ben knew all the details of the situation and easily ruined the whole thing by calling the insurance company and filling them in. That pissed off Hollywood quite a bit, as you can imagine. From that point, it was officially game on with the two exchanging threatening calls but never confronting each other in person. So I don't know how game on it really was. Ben and his friends smashed out the windows in Jesse's house, but evidently Jesse was not home at the time. Evidently? So was he home and hiding? I don't know. I, I say evidently because in the movie he was home and hiding, and there was no recollection of it in the book I read. It just said that Ben and his friends smashed out the windows. And also, I don't think Ben took a shit on the rug. Would have been a lot cooler if he did. This all just seems very... High school? Childish, yeah. Well, yeah, they're fucking, I mean... And then they just, like, escalated it to a very extreme that seemed also totally unnecessary and not intelligent. They're fake gangsters is really what it comes down to. And these... Okay, I have to ask this. These are all white people, correct? Yeah, for the most part. There's a Spaniard or two. A couple weeks later, Jesse found his dog dead in his yard and assumed Ben had poisoned him. This was the final straw for Hollywood, and he assembled his crew and decided that they are going to go looking for Ben. On Sunday, August 6th, around 10 p.m., around 10 a.m., Hollywood, Jesse Ruge, who was another one of Jesse's dealers, and William Skidmore, who was technically the muscle in the group, got in a white van and went patrolling the area they thought Ben might be. Jesse Ruge was 20 years old, a high school dropout, and was more or less complacent with his lot in life selling weed for Hollywood. He was covered in shitty tattoos consisting of a couple scorpions, a skull, and to complete the timeless 90s hard-ass look, a torn muscle anatomical tattoo. Sick. Yeah, so I'm sure there was some cool bones sticking out. It was probably rad as hell. Rad as hell. He spent a short stint in jail for a DUI, and at the time was staying with his dad, who was some sort of greenhouse botanist. He was kind of famous in uh, his professional circles 
Something about a genetically engineered plant with a very large phallus. William Skidmore was a gang-affiliated Spanish dude. His nickname was supposedly Vato Loco, but I think that's probably just what his white friends called him. As it turns out, though, uh, William Skidmore was the only one of the whole group that was jumped into an actual gang. He was in the Long Beach gang, the Satanas. Satanas. And while Hollywood didn't trust Skidmore enough to do business with him, he did appreciate the muscle and intimidation that it provided his little crew. So he kept him around. And his gang didn't have an issue with him mingling with other drug dealers and such? He wasn't dealing for them, no. Oh, he was just hanging out? He was just hanging out, yeah. He was just chilling, getting the vibe, smoking the free weed, and then, um, yeah, you know, he was playing both sides, you might say. Ryan Hoyt, as I've already covered, was the low man on the totem pole. He seemed to constantly owe Hollywood money, and because of this, Hollywood would constantly harass him in front of everyone about how much money he had for him and what chores he would do to work off the debt that day. Not that Ryan didn't deserve it. I'll get it out of the way now. Fuck this guy. It was funny because in the book, Susan made a point to let the readers know that even though Hollywood had a dog named Chump, Ryan Hoyt was the real Chump of the group. I don't know why you'd name your dog Chump. Like, I hate Hollywood even more now. I would name him Chomp instead of Chump. Yeah, for real. Especially if you're trying to be like, you know, it was a pit bull, and so he's trying to be Mr. Hardass. Why are you going to name him Chump? Graham Presley was a friend of, of Jesse Ruge, and he didn't seem to be officially connected to Hollywood's crew and he kind of gets sucked into the story somewhat unwillingly, and he will come into play later. <laughs> Around 1 p.m. on August 6th, 911 dispatchers received a call from a woman named Pauline Mahoney. She stated she and her three boys had been driving back from church when she saw a white van pull over, a group of men jump out, assault a teenage boy, throw him in the van, and drive off. Pauline had her boys recite the license plate number all the way home, because this was back before everyone had a cell phone readily available. So what did the police do with this information? A moment or two later, Rosalia de la Cruz Guitao called the emergency line. The UCLA student recounted the exact same story, the van, the beating, the kidnapping. Seems like police had everything they needed to quickly track down who had taken the boy. Sadly, both dispatchers coded their calls wrong, coding them as assaults instead of as uh, kidnapping in progress. What this meant was that when the responding officers showed up and didn't see anyone in distress, they cruised around a bit and called it a day. Classy. Yeah. Had they just ran the plate number and gone to question the owner of the van, this story could have a much happier ending. If you didn't already guess, the van, the people in the van, was Hollywood and his crew, and the kid that they kidnapped was Nick, Ben's little brother. As soon as they had him in the van, Hollywood started grilling Nick about Ben's whereabouts. Despite Nick's insistence that his brother had moved out and he didn't know where he was staying, Hollywood continued to demand the info he wanted. This was interrupted by Nick's pager going off over and over as Susan paged him repeatedly trying to locate him. Hollywood took the pager and had Nick's pockets searched. Hollywood's stress levels rose when he read the number on the pager. That's my mom, Nick said. Hollywood now realized the gravity of the situation. They had kidnapped this kid in front of witnesses and now his mom was already looking for him. Nick didn't have much of value on his person, his wallet, a bag of weed, and a few Valium pills in a baggie, which supposedly is what Susan said she'd seen the night before. A ring on Nick's finger, a family heirloom that had been passed down from his grandpa, caught Hollywood's eye, and he insisted Nick show him his hands. When he did, he ripped the ring off Nick's finger. Nick protested and reached for the ring, but Hollywood violently slammed him into the seat. Finally, Jesse Ruge urged Hollywood to give him back the ring. He did, 
but not before he bitched and carried on about how Ben owed him money and what a pain in the ass this whole thing was. The Rugi character was uh, the Justin Timberlake character, correct? Yes. Uh huh. Yep. And he's the one who supposedly, you know, even though he kind of had a big old hand in this, they, tr- they I felt like they tried to play him off like he was the kind of friend of the kid, and the book kind of kind of made it seem that way, even though, you know, the mom is writing it. Yeah. Susan definitely had more uh, empathy. For Graham Presley, the one who wasn't really involved and got sucked into it. Now they had a problem. The original plan was to load up, go find Ben, kick the shit out, kick the shit out of him for a bit or something, and then head into Santa Barbara for Fiesta, which is a California festival that celebrates Spanish cultures. Instead, now they had this kid in tow, and it was really going to fuck up their party plans. They drove around a bit, running some random errands and picking up Skidmore's best friend Brian. Hollywood suggested Rugi take the kid back to his dad's house, but that was a no-go. So after some consideration, Rugi said he knew a place, and they loaded into the van and headed to Richard Hoflinger's house to try and get a place to lay low. Hoflinger's a great last name. Yeah, you know the dude's just tossing them everywhere. Rugi didn't tell Richard much, just that he needed a spot to chill for a bit. Just that he and his friends needed a spot to chill for a bit. He agreed, and Hollywood and the rest of the bunch pushed past him into one of the rooms in the back of the house. Once they had Nick back in the room, they tied his hands and feet and duct-taped his mouth. Hoflinger saw this, but decided, based on his limited experience with the Hollywoods, to just stay the hell out of the situation. Probably a bad call. Definitely a bad call. Um, the, the movie and, of course, the book made note of how many people witnessed this whole situation throughout the course of it, and uh, Hoflinger was like... Witness number six, and all the people in his house were on that list as well. Rugi tried to ease Hoflinger's mind, explaining the situation and playing down the kidnapping part. He promised, just give me a couple hours and we'll be out of here. Finally, Richard decided he would rather leave a bunch of strangers in his house with a kidnapped kid than get involved, and he gathered up his people, all staying at the house with him, and they headed out. Possibly also to Fiesta. In the movie it said they were going to Fiesta. In the book... They were just going out. I like to think that they were also going to party. Hollywood said he had to go take a shower, and he and Rugi took off for a bit, leaving Skidmore and Brian Affronti to watch Nick alone. They could have let Nick go, but instead they kept him tied up and waited for Hollywood to return. When he did get back, Affronti told Hollywood he had a date back in the valley and he needed to get going. Hollywood reluctantly handed over the van keys and let Skidmore drive back with Brian. And they were like pretty much decided that the whole thing was just a little too intense for them. So they that was an excuse to, to head back. And they never came back? They did not come back, no. This was their only involvement? Yeah, aside from the involvement where they didn't call the police. Well, yeah, but like later down the line, because they held him for quite a while, but they never like got re-involved. Nah. I think it's possible that Skidmore, since he w- was actually involved in real organized crime, might have like and like, this is a stupid way to go about this. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. But yeah, he dipped. About this time, Hollywood said he had business to attend to and left an unhappy Jesse Rugi in charge of Nick for the night. By this time, Nick was no longer bound and gagged. In fact, he was playing video games and smoking weed with Rugi. He was not interested in causing Ben more trouble, so instead he sat and chilled, content to get a break from his parents' strictness. Jesse's father's house was only a couple miles from Hoflinger's house, so they decided to just walk there so they could crash for the night. Jesse assured Nick 
that they were going to get the whole situation worked out very, very soon, and everything was going to be okay. He might have meant it too, but the situation was already spiraling out of his and even Jesse James Hollywood's control. So is that where we're going to end it this week, Chief? Yes. Hopefully I can get this wrapped up in the third episode, but as I've already covered, I am not concise. That's not a, that was not a long episode. All right, guys. Well, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us an email at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com. That's F-O-U-R cornerscrimecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fourcornerscrimecast, our Facebook group, Four Corners Crimecast discussion group, on Instagram at fourcornerscrimecast, and on Twitter at fourcornerscast. And sorry for the dog. And don't forget to give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, and check out our website, fourcornerscrimecast.com, where you can head over there to get a full episode list to submit an idea for an episode that you would like to hear, or to get your free sexy vinyl sticker sent out to you 100% for free. All you got to do is type bingo bango in the checkout box, or send us an email. We'll still send you one for free. It don't matter. All right, guys. Talk to you next week. See ya. Adios, motherfuckers! You could have aborted the next Jesus! That'd be a pretty good billboard to have. <laughs>